Talk Radio 570 KVI. It's KVI Want to Know Weekends. KVI Want to Know Weekends. Get ready to raise a toast with Seattle's most spirited hour of talk, Happy Hour Radio. Explore the best in Washington wines, beer, spirits, food, and more with your guide, Seattle sommelier, Christopher Chan. It's Happy Hour Radio, right now on Talk Radio 570 KVI. Well, hello, Seattle. Hello, Puget Sound, or welcome to Happy Hour Radio. I'm your host, Christopher Chan, advanced sommelier, the weekend wine guy, and the king of kosher wines. Uh, hey, it's Easter weekend and also the beginning of Passover, so we've got lots to celebrate, of course. Um, <laughs> freedom, the release of slavery, um, the rebirth of uh, our Christianity, and... Um, you know, we're going to be eating a lot of uh, good food this weekend. And one of the, the meals that I have yet to um, to really enjoy, I should say, to really ever try, I'm sure I would enjoy it. It's called a Seder. The Passover dinner um, recognizes the freedom of the uh, Israelites from the uh, slavery of Egypt. And uh, there is a whole host of uh, traditions and uh, great food. And, of course, wine. And uh, I had the pleasure of speaking with Gabe Geller, um, hosting Gabe. He's uh, actually on the East Coast, uh, up late tonight on Saturday. And he is the Director of Public Relations and uh, Wine Procurement for the Royal Wine Company, which really specializes in kosher wine. So, hey, Gabe Geller, welcome to Happy Hour. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Yeah, my pleasure. Um, let's see. I take it you're Jewish. Is that right? That's correct. <laughs> is, is that one of the prerequisites to working with the Royal Wine Company? No, not necessarily. Okay. Um, what What are the, some of the things that you remember? Well, first of all, tell me about the Royal Wine Company itself. How long has the Royal Wine Company been in, in business? Okay. So uh, the Royal Wine Company has been in existence uh, since uh, in over 70 years. Uh, the Herzog's family, uh, which uh, owns and uh, operates uh, the Royal Wine Corporation, uh, has been in the in winemaking uh, since the mid uh, uh, the mid nineteenth century. Wow. Okay. Uh, they have been uh, they have been operating the company since uh, uh, since uh, nineteen forty eight. It's been it's been seventy one years. Wow. All right. And you're based in New Jersey or New York? Uh, we're based in uh, in New Jersey. Excellent. Bayonne, New Jersey. So um, looking back at those early days, 1948, I mean, how many kosher wines were available back then, do you think? Very, very few. It was uh, uh, essentially the what we call sacramental wine, uh, which is a sweet, uh, very uh, syrupy, uh, wine made uh, essentially from Concord grapes uh, grown in upstate New York. Right. Okay. So that's the Manischewitz that we all remember. <laughs> in some cases, <laughs> perhaps we'd not. Pay, perhaps people should get back to that. But interesting. Uh, when was this trend for turning uh, for making kosher wines that were more dry than sweet? Well, it actually began uh, in the 1970s. Um, Royal Wine, which is also known as Kedem, uh, uh, Royal Wine owns and operates a Kedem winery in upstate New York, which uh, produces uh, the famous uh, Kedem grape juice, but also uh, a vast array of uh, different uh, wines, including uh, some sacramental wines like the aforementioned ones. Uh, 
they started making uh, dry wines uh, back in the 1970s and importing uh, some of the first uh, quality kosher uh, dry wines from France and from Israel uh, back in those days. Interesting. When I think of sweet wines, I think of German Riesling, Cabernet, and I, I also think that the alcohol is um, a lot lower, like 5 6 7%. Is, is the sweet kosher wine, is it low in alcohol too? Well, it depends. Uh, there, are, there, there are many different types. Uh, some of them are indeed around 6 7% uh, alcohol by volume. Some of them are a little bit higher, uh, all the way up to uh, 11 12% uh, for that type of wine. How many wines does uh, the Royal Wine Company have in uh, their portfolio today? Around 700. And those are all kosher wines? Those are all kosher wines from all over the world, from the very best wine-growing regions, uh, such as uh, Bordeaux in France, uh, Washington, Pacific Northwest, of course. Really? <laughs> uh, Oregon. Uh, we have wines uh, from Argentina, from Israel, uh, from uh, Chile, from Australia, from uh, really from all over the world. Well, I'm curious. Italy, you name it. I'm curious. <laughs> who, who's making kosher wine here in the Pacific Northwest? Do you know? Well, uh, there is a winery which is called Pacifica, uh, which is uh, not so close uh, to uh, Seattle. It's uh, closer to uh, uh, to Portland, actually. It's about one hour from uh, from Portland. Okay. Uh, and uh, they have vineyards which are they are really at the border between uh, Oregon and Washington. Sure, the Columbia uh, River. The winery itself is in Washington. Uh, most of their vineyards are in Washington as well, but some of their vineyards are across the border, especially the Pinot Noir vineyard, uh, which are located in, uh, in Oregon. And they make some truly fantastic wines. You mentioned the uh, German Riesling before, and they, they make a fantastic Riesling, uh, which is uh, in a German style. It's uh, Austria. It's a truly beautiful wine. Hey, that's pretty neat. Now, I'm curious. Um, uh, let's talk about what is the definition of kosher wine? Okay, so kosher wine, uh, many think that uh, kosher wine is wine that is uh, blessed by a rabbi. Right. That's not the case. <laughs> or uh, that uh, kosher wines are all uh, sweet, syrupy, sacramental wines like the ones uh, we uh, mentioned before. Uh, not at all. Uh, kosher wine is made exactly uh, like any other uh, wine. It's exactly the same method, the same uh, gray birdies, uh, wherever those uh, wines uh, come from. Uh, what is different is that uh, from the time that the grapes are crushed uh, and pressed into uh, grape juice before uh, the fermentation and all the way through uh, the bubbling of the wine, uh, all the operations have to be handled uh, by uh, Sabbath observant Jews. Uh, uh-huh. So what happens is that uh, there are wineries that are fully kosher uh, year-round, uh, and the staff is uh, only Sabbath observant Jews, and all the operations from start to finish are really uh, entirely uh, handled uh, by, uh, by such, uh, by such uh, employees. Uh, and there are also uh, wineries that do not make kosher wine, but that produce, uh, besides of their uh, non-kosher certified wines, they produce uh, kosher wines as well. Uh, and for that, we uh, send crews of several observant uh, people who will handle the, uh, all the hands-on operations uh, under, of course, uh, the instructions and the, the directives of uh, the winery.
Okay. Interesting. So um, Sabbath observing Jews means they go to temple on Saturday. Is that right? Well, they do not necessarily go to a uh, temple on Saturday, but they, uh, they, they observe the laws of the Sabbath, uh, which is uh, not being able to uh, oh. actively uh, use electricity, Touch uh, money. drive a car, yeah. uh, enter the phone. Uh, and those uh, those types of things. <laughs> wow, well, that's I, I kind of like that. It's this the truly unplugging. Go go figure that uh, being unplugged was part of the Jewish tradition thousands of years ago. That's pretty cool. Uh, let's yeah, let's talk absolutely. about the seder dinner itself. Um, I, I would imagine there's lamb, and of course there's probably there's uh, a couple dishes. There's matzo ball soup, um, uh, and there's uh, carrots and prunes. Tell me some of the dishes that are your favorites. Okay, so matzo ball soup is. Uh, probably uh, all the way up there uh, on top of my list, uh, and that's actually that's the type of uh, that's the type of dishes they uh, enjoy uh, pairing with uh, with riesling, for example, uh-huh. or with a sparkling uh, wine like a champagne. Uh, we have some great uh, kosher champagne uh, from uh, Drapier and Rothschild, wow. uh, which are really uh, really fantastic. Yeah, I know. Actually, I met uh, the Drapier family. Um, they are down in the, the the south of the Champagne region, uh, and I was not aware that. Uh, I guess it makes sense that Rothschild would make uh, <laughs> some kosher wine, right? Um, that's one of those <laughs> names that go way back in history. Uh, when you think about kosher wines, is do you have to have a special glass? Uh, does it matter? Is there a special? Is no, there a ceremony no, or tradition to go matter. with pouring? It does not matter. Uh, traditionally, we use for uh, uh, for holidays and the Sabbath, and of course that includes uh, uh, the Passover Seder. Uh, we uh, typically the, the one who uh, has uh, the table uh, will usually use uh, a silver uh, a silver cup. Uh, but jealous. not everybody does it, and there is no. There is no obligation in the, in the Jewish law to use uh, to use, uh, to use uh, such a cup uh, or glass, but it is a it is a tradition that many, if not most, people uh, have. Interesting. Um, I have the pleasure of having Gabe Geller, who is the uh, PR and wine procurer for uh, the Royal Wine Company, which uh, specializes in kosher wines. They have over 700 kosher wines in their inventory out in New Jersey. And I'm curious, what's the most expensive wine you have out there? What is the most expensive wine we have? Uh, this one will actually surprise you even more. Uh, it is uh, it is an Israeli wine uh, uh, made uh, made by Amari Studemeyer, a uh, former really? NBA All Star. Really? No way! Uh, he he makes at a winery in Israel called Tulip uh, in the north of Israel. He makes uh, his own uh, line of kosher wines. Uh, and uh, his flagship wine, uh, which is called the Amari uh, Studimeyer Private Collection, uh, is uh, cost uh, about two hundred and fifty dollars on the shelf. Wow! Um, I understand that Herzog is. Uh, I received some samples from uh, the Herzog family, and I know they make wines in California. Do they make wines elsewhere? Yes. So, uh, well, the, the 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 Herzog family they own. Uh, like I said before, the Kedem Winery in Upstate New York and the Herzog Winery in Oxnard, uh, which is in Southern California, about one hour from uh, Los Angeles. Uh, however, the, the source, all the grapes, the vineyards, uh, are all over California, North Coast, Santa Barbara County, uh, Paso Robles, Napa Valley, Sonoma County, Lake County. 
uh, really from uh, the, the very best uh, vineyards in, uh, in the region. And as well, there, is, uh, there, there are wines that are called the Herzog Selection, which are not made uh, per se by, uh, by the Herzog family, but for the Herzog family uh, in France. Okay, very cool. Um, and I imagine uh, this has been a very busy month for, for the Royal Wine Company. How many bottles of wine have you uh, distributed lately in this last month? Well, I do not have the, the figures, but uh, it's, uh, it's, a, it's a lot of wine. Uh, it used <laughs> to be, uh, the Passover season used to be uh, even bigger than that. Uh, but as the, as the, the, Jewish, uh, the Jewish population has gotten actually more into wine, as in more uh, sophisticated, they actually buy wine nowadays uh, also at different times of the year. So uh, whereas it used to be around 65% of the year sales, now it's more around 40%, with about 30% uh, happening around uh, Rosh Hashanah, which is the Jewish New Year, typically in September or October. Uh-huh. Uh, and uh, the, other, uh, the other 30% uh, being sold the rest of the year. Okay, and is is Hanukkah a big time then too? Do do uh, so relatively, of... relatively. Of course. Uh, well, this is really neat. Now, is there a website that people who are interested in learning more about kosher wines and seeing some of the names, uh, perhaps even NBA sure. fans? <laughs> what's the What's sure, the wine but site? I have to warn you. Uh, so it's realwine dot com. Very simple. Uh, but it, uh, but but the wine is actually being uh, revamped these days. In a few weeks, there will be a brand new. Uh, website with a lot more information. So uh, I, I will warn you that it is not the most up-to-date uh, website, but there is there is anyway a lot of information and most of our products are on there. Well, I'm excited about uh, sitting down for a Seder dinner. One of these days, I'll be traveling uh, uh, this, uh, it's actually leaving tomorrow. So uh, anyway, Gabe Geller, what a special treat. Thank you so much for sharing uh, the story of kosher wines, the Seder, and of course, the Royal Wine Company. It was my pleasure. Thank you so much. All right. Hey, folks, that's uh, that's a little taste of our friends who celebrate Passover. And uh, anytime there's wine, it sounds like a good time. And that's the Royal Wine Comp- royalwine.com. You can check out their website and check it out now and then and get back to it uh, in a couple weeks when they've got it all updated. Hey, coming up next, uh, we're going to chat about garlic. And uh, April is National Garlic Month, and I think it makes perfect sense. So stick around. We'll be right back on Happy Hour Radio. He's live, he's local, he's all Northwest. Lars Larson, weekdays noon to 3, talk radio 570 KVI. KVI Want to Know Weekends continue. Now back to Happy Hour Radio with Christopher Chan. All right, welcome back. It's Easter weekend, Easter Saturday night. Uh, It's Passover tonight, and it's time for some garlic. Hey, April is my birthday month. Happy birthday to me, but April's also National Garlic Month, and... uh, I love garlic. Um, a lot of people like garlic. It's been part of our culture for a long, long time. I have the CEO of uh, Portland-based Lily Foods. Uh, they specialize in garlic uh, as part of their ingredients for their whole line of uh, really tasty hummus. And uh, his name is Michael Misku. Uh, Michael, hey, welcome to Happy Hour. 
Hey, thanks, Christopher. I really appreciate being on. It's very exciting. Yeah. Happy it's birthday. The, thank you very much. Uh, you know, I'm trying and to think. Happy Garlic Month. Hey, you know what I like it about garlic? I saw that Costco now carries whole roasted garlic uh, cloves, like a two-pound bag. And that's to me, that is like perfect heaven. I mean, that's just like you can munch on those all day. Um, you're a big garlic fan as a CEO of Lily Foods. Did you start this company? Yes. Lily and I both started together back in 2003, you know, quite by accident. Uh, we were having a dinner party one night, and I was in the yard barbecuing. And Lily came out and said, hey, we have some guests coming over. I don't have any appetizers. Let me have that red bell pepper you're barbecuing. And she took it and, and, and whipped it up with some you know, some garbanzo beans and garlic, a little salt, and it was just phenomenal. The guests talked about it all night, and all of a sudden we're selling clear across the country. Hey, congratulations. I was wondering if it was one of those accidents like Reese's Peanut Butter Cups where you've got <laughs> you know, chocolate and peanut butter, they run into each other. Uh, maybe you had some uh, garbanzo beans and she had uh, some uh, red pepper puree. Um, tell me, so when you think about how much garlic how you think you've used in the last 15, 16 years? Oh, my gosh. I think we probably use, you know, 300 pounds at least a week. Wow, okay. So, I mean, Mr. Mathematics that I am, I don't know, maybe 20,000 pounds? Who knows? Yeah, and so that's that's for a, a year, and then you talk about, so you've a uh, quarter of a million pounds of garlic. Yeah, probably. Yeah, that's Incredible. pretty neat. Uh, well, uh, April being National Garlic Month, let's talk about garlic. Garlic is an allium, is that right? It sure is. It's really a beautiful beautiful uh, plant it really it's it's delicious it's medicinal it um you know it, it wards off of course vampires which is a big important thing <laughs> you got some down there maybe it warms off homeless i don't know you got, or yeah, i should say might. drug abusers let's not you know, criminalize the homeless um interesting well uh, you know i liked garlic from a very early age and you know what's interesting is garlic is actually the part that grows in the ground is that right or does it grow above ground no, I, I believe that's the part that grows in the ground, yeah. Okay. I think that, that that's the root of it, and then it grows up with a flower. Yeah. I know one of the things I, we I, have... I've seen some... One of the things we have here in the Pacific Northwest are... Um, oh, shoot, I just had it. What's the, the, the garlic shoots? Uh, ramps. Isn't that what it is? Ramps? Yeah. yeah. Exactly. Little garlic sprouts. Those I know that great. Um, in my food service uh, career, our chef was always excited about that, and that really happens right about now, doesn't it? I think now, uh, April, May, June. It sure does. Yeah, exactly. Those little tender things come out, and they're just so delicious. Um, garlic. So let's talk about some of the properties of garlic. Um, you know, it's one clove is is said to do uh, host hold a bunch of benefits for the human body. Um, I'm reading here well, definitely, and yeah. they say that you know, yeah, they say you know a clove um, is is so good for you. It, it it really helps prevent prostate cancer. It's good for digestion. It it, it helps with the the blood. It it it, it really I think it does so much stuff for you. It's really the magic. I think it's the magic food. It's a magic clove. And I remember being in college. I was a freshman at the University of Washington, and I was uh, had the hots for this this gal. And I was in her dorm room, and she would slice up raw garlic and put it on her buttered bread because she believed in the medicinal benefits back then. I was like, "You're eating raw garlic." Uh, we didn't that that relationship didn't go on too far, but I really appreciated that she was all about health back then. That's pretty cool. And this was a uh, shoot. This is a uh, thirty thirty years ago. <laughs> 
She um, might so, look the same too. I uh, mean, they say that it's good for your skin. It's it's just it's a you know it's just incredible. Interesting. Is the smell of garlic a uh, one of the key components to being garlic? Is is that the thing? Is is it really that that little uh, molecule, or is it something else? Yeah, exactly. I mean, I, I think that smell is so you know I mean it, it is so um, an important part of of how we you know experience our food, um, and and I know that like. Uh, uh, if when you slice into the garlic, th- then it releases some really great properties. Um, something like uh, allium or allicin or something. Like, I don't know exactly what it's called, but it's supposed to be really medicinal and you know just incredibly good for you. And of course, roasted garlic is out of this world good. I love it. It's called the uh, compound is called allicin, A L L I C I N. And I'm wondering, when you roast garlic, do you lose any benefits or medicinal properties, or should we be chomping on raw garlic all the time? Well, you know, I mean, I, I definitely think that raw garlic is extra good for you, but I, I, not a tremendous amount of the benefits are, are are decreased when you're roasting it. What about things like garlic powder? I remember uh, I was making protein drinks at my work, and somebody put a bunch of garlic powder in my protein once. It was crazy. I was like, what in the world? But gar- I use garlic powder at home. I'm curious, uh, is there some benefit there by chance? Oh, most definitely. Um, you know, you're, you're just basically, you're, you know, you're just basically drying the garlic out. So it still has a tremendous amount of its properties. Um, you get the nice flavor. You get the health benefits. You get the ease of it being, you know, right there where you just shake it out. Interesting. I see that um, garlic can be used as an antifungal, so you could put a couple of cloves in your shoes and then, you know, be, be free of uh, that toenail fungus or something. I think something. that's what the trailblazers have been doing. <laughs> that's funny. Uh, I'm a big NBA fan, and my sister works for an NBA agent, so uh, uh, Damian Lillard is in part of their portfolio. Uh, so, yeah, go I love Damian, Damian Lillard. He, what, what a, he's such a great guy. I mean, he's, uh, you know, he, he's a... He had been a vegetarian, but I guess he went back to eating meat. But but uh, I I understand he's a big garlic fan. I'm sure it's you know I remember uh, talking to some NBA guys and they were into juicing. This was 25 years ago. Like yeah, they did, were juicing things, and so uh, it makes perfect sense. Let's talk about Lily Foods. So you use uh, 300 pounds of garlic um, a week, and how many different products uh, you have? You have hummus, right? And hummus is we do. A, yeah. We have um, is it a, 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 a what's where does it come from? Where is hummus made? We're, we're, or, or well, you know, there's a big controversy about that. I mean, I, I think that a lot of historians are saying that it really was invented in Egypt. Right. That they're claiming that they found some kind of remnants in, in some tombs and, and things like that. Plastic container? But of so many... <laughs> pardon? A plastic container with the hummus Yeah, a plastic container. Yeah. I think it was lilies. Yeah. I think it was lilies. You but, go. you know... <laughs> And, uh, and, but, you know, a lot of countries are saying, you know, this is ours, you know, and there's so many different ways to make it. You know, is it chunky? Is it smooth? Are you using olive oil, tahini? You know, what are you, you, know, what are you doing? I mean, and, and then the bean could be different, too. I mean, we use, you know, we use garbanzo beans. Sure. Um, and, uh, and, and we also have, we have one variety that we have half black bean and half garbanzo bean, and that's a real nice combination. Yeah, I love black beans myself. Um when you think of uh, using garlic, do you guys process the garlic? Because here's what I remember: I remember that you it's good to eat raw garlic, but you can't like try to make um, garlic infused olive oil because you'll get botulism. Exactly. You, I mean, you, you you want to roast that garlic when you're doing that, right? 
So you need to sort of uh, take out the bio the, the biosynthesis part where that can that continue to grow. Um, do you guys cook all your garlic? Do you guys have a big garlic roaster, or do you have? We some, sure do. Yeah, we that... we roast all our garlic. It's it's such a great smell that when we're the day we're roasting garlic in the plant, it's such a wonderful smell. It really permeates and. I, I just love roasted garlic. I could eat it by the handful. <laughs> Me too. Um, unfor- <laughs> unfortunately, a lot of folks, um, I remember playing basketball and the next day, like, God, what in the world? Um, it's, a, it's a big garlic world. You know, it's funny because the Greeks are known to eat a lot of garlic, as are the Italians. And, but you don't, you don't think of the Egyptians as eating garlic because they're eating hummus. Um, is garlic everywhere in the world? Yeah, garlic's everywhere in the world. I mean, um, you know, th- this region grows garlic really well. It, it seems like it's it's a kind of a uh, one of those universal plants that can pretty much grow everywhere. Yeah, well, that's good. Um, I know that the capital of uh, garlic is down in Gilroy, California. I believe. I think they makes they uh, produce a lot of garlic. Yeah. I love Gilroy. Gilroy's a great place. Uh, Christopher Ranch down there, they do a terrific job with garlic. Yeah, I know it's amazing to get those two uh, two pound jars of gar- garlic cloves, and um, I'm a big fan of, of roasted garlic myself. When I see those little uh, bulbs on sale at the, the local market, I buy a handful of them, and then of course, you know, nobody wants to t- be around me for a while because I just reek like garlic. But it's a good thing. And uh, um, let's talk about some Lily Foods. You've got uh, a whole line of different hummus flavors. Um, how many total? Uh, nine. We have we have nine flavors. Uh, we have you know a regular classic. We have our you know our, our really kind of unusual. We've got a sriracha one. Got a cracked pepper that's really delicious. And you're available. Olive. Yeah, that's cool. Are you, your products are available locally as well. I know that you're in Whole Foods and PCC markets. Oh, you know it. Those are two great institutions. We also we're also at the, the QFCs and we're at Fred Meyer up there. Um, we're, we're in so many great. So many great, like lo- locations up there. We really, really appreciate, you know, the Seattleites really, really going after lilies. It's really terrific. Awesome. Well, um, we can- also have. Oh wait, hey, we got to roll. It's uh, National Garlic Month. Michael Misku is the CEO of Lily Foods. Hey, thanks so much for joining me on Happy Hour Radio. Thanks, Christopher. I really appreciate you. You have you have a great birthday. All right. Hey, uh, it's uh, National Garlic Month. I guess I should have a garlic something with a candle in it. So stick around. I'll be right back. Tune it in and turn it up. Cruise home with Kirby. The Kirby Wilbur Show, live and local. Weekdays, 3 to 6 p.m. KVI. KVI Want to Know Weekends continue. Now back to Happy Hour Radio with Christopher Chan. All right, Seattle. Hey, welcome back. It's time to talk about some food. We talked about garlic. We talked about Passover. And it is the season for the reason of cooking food and sharing with family, uh, Passover and Easter, of course. I have um, a brother from another parent, (laughs) Uh, Eric Silverstein. He is the author. Um, His... uh, his mother is from China, and um, we'll, ch- we'll let him talk about that. He's the author of The Peach Tortilla, The Peached Tortilla, Modern Asian Comfort Food from Tokyo to Texas. Eric Silverstein, welcome to Happy Hour. Thanks for having me on. I appreciate it. Right on. So um, let's talk about you. Have you been a foodie all your life, you think, or did you gradu- graduate at some point? 
no, I mean, I think I've always been into food. Um, I, I don't really use that term to describe myself, but I think it's just been kind of, you know, one of those culturally ingrained things since, you know, since I was born, you know, it was just, just food just meant a lot to me. Okay. Your mom's from where? Hong, she's Hong Kong Chinese. Okay, cool. So, uh, have you been to Hong Kong? I have, but strangely enough, I actually didn't. I, I didn't make it out there until I was twenty four. Okay, the first time I was there. Well, that's cool because yeah. then you're old enough to you know get around the town and and walk into the thousands of thousands of restaurants that just are little holes in the wall with their their soups and their noodles and um, all sorts of good stuff. Um, your dad is uh, is he worldly? Does he go? Is, he's a traveler. <laughs> He's extremely worldly. Um, in fact, right now, as we speak, um, I believe he's in Hong Kong right now. He's got an apartment in Hong Kong. But, uh, but yeah, extremely worldly. Uh, studied abroad in college um, in Japan. Um, got taken in by a, a Japanese family, actually, um, who he lived with for an extended period of time. And and then from there, he just kind of kind of traveled throughout Asia, lived in Singapore uh, for a little bit with my mom, and then um, settled on, on Japan, where I was born. Oh, wow, really? Cool. Mm-hmm. My parents yeah. just came back from Kyoto. They were uh, checking out that old artisanal town and they said it was just amazing. Have you ever been to Kyoto? I have. I was there, I mean, I was there as a kid. Uh, I don't really remember it. Sure. And I went back recently from a honeymoon, which was in... Uh, we went to Tokyo, went to uh, Osaka, and went to Kyoto for a day trip. Pretty Osaka. neat. So, yeah. So, you're an author. Did you, Is this your first book, The Peached Tortilla? It is. Yeah. Oh. It's it's my first book. I never never intended to write a book. I never set out to write a book. Uh, it just kind of happened, to be honest. Well, what was the inspiration? What was the genesis or motivation? Honestly, the motivation was, I mean, initially there was no motivation, uh, if I want to be completely honest. <laughs> Slacker. I was approached by a literary agent, okay. and, um, you know, she was like, I think you have a great story. I think you should write a memoir. All right. Um, so we went, we, we actually went down the path of trying to write a memoir and pitching it, and, and honestly, no publisher bid on it. And we kind of pivoted two years in, and she was like, hey, look, like, I still think you have a great brand. I think you have a great story. You have good food, so what do you think about the idea of doing a cookbook? Because that's what publishers want these days. Um, it's easier for me to sell as your agent. And, you know, I was kind of on the fence on it, to be honest. I I, I didn't really feel like I had the time to devote toward, towards it. We're trying to open up a restaurant. Um, oh, boy. But she was very persuasive, and uh, we kept it, kept going for another two years. And eventually we got a deal to write a cookbook. And so and once we got the deal, I was all in on it. Um, but, but initially, like, to be quite honest, I didn't have a motivation to write a book there. I wasn't trying to. Did you, did you, when you started a cookbook, was it based on the modern Asian, um, comfort food or was it just about, you know, stuff mom made? Uh, what do you mean? Originally or? Yeah. I mean, yeah. Did, did you set out with like, Hey, our story is really about all these wonderful dishes that I grew up with. That's how I can relate to it. Put it in context and tell you how to make it. I mean, our, I mean, honestly, the, the story was always going to be about the, – the book really makes sense of the food that we serve and why we serve that food. And the book was always going to be about that. Um, and I think 
my background and my story and my, you know, understanding like how I grew up and, and where I grew up provides a lot of context to why we serve the food we do. Otherwise, it, it might not make as much sense. Interesting. So you grew, you were born in Japan. What state did you grow up in? Oh, I grew up in Tokyo. Okay, so when did you come to the United States? Uh, I moved to Atlanta. I moved to Atlanta, Georgia, when I was almost twelve. Okay, wow. So you're bilingual then, of course, right? Trilingual, probably. <laughs> no, I'm actually well. I'm bilingual, <laughs> but I speak Spanish. <laughs> but uh, so you work in restaurants I, 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 then? As a kid. Yeah, exactly. I mean, you kind of have to. But I mean, when I was a kid, um, I spoke Japanese um, and English. My parents sent me to a Japanese preschool. So, I mean, I've, I was pretty fluent in Japanese. Um, that that kind of tailored off as my parents sent me to an international school. I, I asked for them to send me to an international school because I was actually the only non-Japanese kid in Japanese preschool. And yeah. I just felt like it wasn't the right fit for me. <laughs> right on. Well, I grew up with uh, two Japanese kids when I was... Uh, Eight, nine, ten, eleven, and uh, I remember I learned all the bad words, so that's <laughs> kind okay. of all fun, right. fun for me. We won't say those on air. Well, we can say them because no one knows what they mean. I mean, like onada, right? <laughs> well, I don't even know what that means. All oh, so. right, all right. Um, well, let's <laughs> talk about this book, the Peach Tortilla. Interesting name, modern Asian comfort food. Um, what was one of your first recollections of saying that? I mean, like teriyaki, right? I mean, the, the Asians got it right. They got sweet and salty. And um, mm -hmm. what was one of your memories that said, you know what, I just love this particular dish? Well, I mean, any particular dish. I mean, I can tell you right now that, you know, when I was living in Japan, I was predominantly exposed to Japanese food uh, sure. in addition to my mom's food, which is Chinese food. Okay. Um but Japanese food made such an impact on me at an early age. And it's not, you know, in America, I think I think we're getting around to realizing, like, Japanese food is more than just sushi and ramen. Right. Um, but, you know, I have distinct memories of eating uh, yakitori on, on the streets, mm -hmm. the street vendors, yakimo, which is, you know, smoked yam, oden, which is, um, you know, different types of... Uh, proteins and ingredients that are, that serve to you in a broth. Um, uh, teppanyaki, sukiyaki, Japanese-style barbecue. All, I mean, there's tons of food in Japan. And um, really taking to that. You know, ironically, I didn't actually eat that much sushi in Japan. I didn't eat that much raw fish when I was a kid. But all the other stuff, I was, you know, kind of fell in love with. Yeah, I know that's um Jap you know it's interesting because the Japanese seem to be such a fast-paced lifestyle and yet um I don't believe that the meal is a fast-paced thing. It's very slow and thoughtful and really honoring the food and and the food sculptor or creator. I know that uh, Japan is is all sorts of convenience which make food accessible. Um, and maybe that's yeah. changing a bit. Um, thinking about comfort food, what are some of the things that you would say describe comfort food? I mean, for me or the book? For you. you saying? I mean, you. for me, it's, it's, when I think comfort food, it's food that, that I grew up eating at home. Um, and it's dishes that my mom would, you know, serve me if I hadn't been home for a while. 
stuff right. that would make me feel like I'm at home again, you know? And so in this cookbook, we have a lot of those recipes. Um, soy sauce chicken. Ah, uh, right. Southern fun, which is my take on chow fun, which is my favorite dish my mom made for mm-hmm. me growing up. Hainanese chicken and rice. Um, those dishes are kanji. You know, those dishes are comfort food for me. I agree. I remember, you know, it's funny because we would have a big pot of kanji, you know, like every Sunday it was there and, you know, it was juk. It's yeah. like, okay, it wasn't, it was very pedestrian, very peasant, very rudimentary, and yet it just right. had the warmth and the, the say you added the savory, the oil and the, and the soy and the and the scallions and things. And it became, it's almost like rock soup, right? You know, you start with uh, just a rock and some water and the next thing you know, you've come up with all these great things. Yeah, it's a total you know, blank canvas, so to speak. Um, funny, every time I hear just now, I think of the hangover two where yeah. the, the father-in-law calls the, the white guy, you're just, you <laughs> you're, know, like you're, you're bland and boring. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, in reality, it's not that bland and boring. You can spice it up. Of course. Hey, we're going to take a little break here, and when we come back, I want to hear some of the best uh, best met recipes. Uh, speaking with Eric Silverstein, who is the author of The Peached Tortilla, Modern Asian Comfort Food from Tokyo to Texas. I'm sure it's available on Amazon, but stick around. We'll be right back hearing more on Happy Hour Radio. Regular guys separated by 20 years and a full head of hair. Mark Lee and Van Camp. Weekdays 9 to noon. Talk Radio 570 KVI. It's KVI Want to Know Weekends. And you're listening to Happy Hour Radio. Now back to Seattle, Somalia. Christopher Chan. All right, Seattle. Hey, welcome back uh, to our fourth and final segment. I've got Eric Silverstein, who is the um, a young chef and an author of The Peach Tortilla, The Modern Asian Comfort Food. So, Eric, uh, we talked about you growing up, some of your passions, some of your uh, loves of food and culinary. Let's talk about the book. Um, I see that, you know, one of the, was it, uh, Stray Dogs and Street Food. Let's start there. Yeah. Well, that those recipes are inspired by um, my trips. Well, a, a lot of them are inspired by my trips to Singapore as a kid. Hmm. And I think Singapore is probably like one of the most underrated kind of culinary capitals of the world there's so much good food there's like an intersection of so many different types of food uh, you know malaysian cuisine indian cuisine um and my 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 family i remember the best meals i had were at hawker stands right and um at restaurants in a neighborhood uh, called pungal and uh, i just have such vivid distinct memories of eating seafood and chili crab and prawns and um Going, you know, my one of my favorite dishes growing up in Singapore was this dish called Sago Gula Malaka, and um, so that chapter is really devoted towards a lot of recipes that, um, you know, from from I guess like inspired by my my travels as a kid over there. Very cool. I know the street food. It's uh, they're really are they're artisans. They're there. They they prepare every day, um, and they're there cooking it fresh. 
uh, and it's it smells great. You can see it being cooked, so your eyes are helping your appetite, and of course the flavors are truly authentic and tremendous. Um, I'm looking at something. Um, you know, when you think about comfort food these days, we would talk about, of course, butter or bacon or um, cream and a lot of that fat and umami, right? Uh, I'm looking at on your book here. You've got something called bacon and shrimp. Ono what okonomiyaki. Okonomiyaki. Yeah. 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 That's well, okonomiyaki is it's it's actually one, I referred to it earlier today as one of the most misunderstood dishes in in the United States. So I just don't think people get it. Um, but it's you know it's a savory pancake. Right. Um, and Japanese, believe it or not, they do eat a lot of bacon, uh, and bacon is sometimes served in okonomiyaki. Um, but it's basically a savory pancake, you know, and uh, the the recipe is pretty pretty traditional in the sense that you have like nagaimo, which is a Japanese yam. You have all-purpose flour, egg, um, and then, of course, you know, the proteins, which are um, the bacon and the shrimp. Well, I grew up uh, in uh, Milwaukee, Wisconsin, and my grandmother was German, so we used to have potato pancakes, which are also a savory pancake. Yeah. So I'm familiar with that. Looking at your cookbook here, the the peach tortilla, I see the Japa Jam burger. Now, is that a play on words? Uh, mm, I don't know if it's a play on words. I mean, yeah, we it, it's the Japa Jam because it's inspired by so it's it's inspired by Japanese cuisine, but primarily it's inspired by this this uh outlet in Japan called Moss Burger. And I don't know if you I don't know if you had a chance to check out Moss Burger. They're they're predominant I mean they're only in Asia basically, but um it's basically fusion burgers, you know, it's like the Japanese take on American burgers. <laughs> but it's it's freaking outstanding. I mean, I'm it sure. really is outstanding. And you know, they have like a teriyaki burger, um, which is kinda like their basic burger, but they have they have what they call like their OG like Moss Burger, which is with, it has meat sauce on it. it. Has like a tomato and meat sauce, and it has this like weird like miso ragu. Mm-hmm. And so we were trying to we were trying to come up with something similar, but not the same. And so we ended up with this Chapa Jam Burger, which has a tomato jam on it. Um, it has some tempura beer battered onion strings, uh, a fried egg, and then also. Um, what we call Japanese barbecue sauce. It's actually a hoisin-based sauce. It's sriracha, honey, and rice vinegar. That's so funny because in my, I mean, when I think of uh, things I crave, some of the flavors are, of course, rice wine, hoisin, uh, sriracha, um, black bean paste, you know, and these are the, sure. the umami flavors, but sometimes they're sweet and salty and savory at the same time. If you would give a suggestion to a couple um, aspiring chefs who want to, um, perhaps create some fusion, create some of that comfort food because it's it's a an Asian take on American or an American take on Asian. Yeah. What's some of the ingredients you would suggest? Well, I think I think to have the most exposure and to uh, sort of not alienate everyone, you kind of have to stay within a certain wheelhouse. So, um, gochujang is a good ingredient. Like I think that. I think that people can relate to that. It's a little bit sweet. It's a little bit spicy. Uh, it can be a little bit overpowering. And for those that don't know, that's just Korean red pepper paste. <laughs> um, I think that's a good uh, gateway ingredient. Another ingredient that we use a lot of that people don't really have in their pantries at home is sweet soy. Sweet soy. So it's a it's a thicker, denser, yeah, uh, 
uh, soy sauce. You know, it, it doesn't pour like regular soy sauce. It's not like dark soy either. It's Good thicker. stuff. And, hey, Eric. Yeah. Where can we get mm-hmm. your book? Amazon.com? Amazon.com, BarnesandNobles.com, IndieBooks.com. It'll be available at a lot of Barnes & Noble stores um, and in their brick-and-mortar retail outlets as well. All right, bud. Hey, Eric Silverstein, thanks so much for joining me on Happy Hour Radio. Thanks for having me. Really appreciate it. All right. Hey, folks, I uh, hope you enjoy the show. Remember, life is always better with a designated driver. Cheers! Cheers!